Revelation. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands. Thousands upon thousands. And ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was. Who was and is. Who was and is and is to come. Then I heard every creature. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And they fell down and worshiped. you this morning. You are great. And in your greatness, all of our trials and challenges fade. Uh, as we focus on you this morning, just open our hearts to hear from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we get started here this morning, I uh, want to, before she leaves the stage, I want to welcome uh, Rhonda, uh, Rhonda Cooker, into uh, church membership. She's the newest member of our church family, so if you want to just give her a warm round of uh, applause and encouragement. I would 
That'd be great. Rhonda, praise God. Uh, thank Rhonda for joining in with us as part of our regular church family. I want to remind you that there's a prayer night that's coming up. That's this Wednesday night here at the church. We'll be praying about all kinds of different needs and all kinds of things uh, within our church family, but also our community and our country and the world. So that's a, a time of gathering for prayer. It starts at 6.30. Also, we're uh, getting ready for a baptism. So the baptism will take place on August 13th. If you're interested in baptism, uh, please talk to me or you can email, I think it's creeksidedm.com and uh, we'll get going with that. So we'll just uh, appreciate that. We've got some interest already in the baptism, so we're looking forward to having another baptism. Uh, Just, uh, I see Brandon here, so welcome new dad. Uh, That's cool. Uh, and uh, the Burtons aren't here, but the, the, we have two additions to our church family just this last week, so or a little over a week now, but it's been good, and we're so grateful for that. So uh, without further ado, I think that's all the announcements that I'm going to call our attention to. I'd just like to uh, refocus our, our minds on how great our God is. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we worship you this morning, and I uh, just really pray that we would continue to stir our hearts. And Father, I don't know, but you do. The circumstances behind each of our lives as we come into this place. And I just pray that you'd quiet our hearts and calm our spirits. You'd focus our hearts on you and focus our spirits to receive what you have for each of us today. By your grace and for your glory, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and We claim that promise, Lord, that it will not go forth without uh, accomplishing that for which you sent it. And we ask now that you would continue to encourage and enrich the families uh, that have welcomed new ones into their their, uh, midst. And I just pray that those uh, young ones would be blessed and encouraged and the moms and families would be uh, strengthened and, and, and enriched as well. God, we pray for our country and ask that you would work powerfully to bring Uh, revival and bring humility and brokenness and a realization of our own waywardness that would turn us back to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters who worship in other churches this morning that preach the gospel that the word of God would go forth with boldness, with clarity, with conviction, and that your spirit would work mightily, Lord, to bring many into the kingdom of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was uh, driving down the road, a remote stretch of road it was, and all of a sudden it started to hail, and I mean it hailed profusely. And all I could think about was uh, looking for safety, but here I was in a remote highway. There were no trees along the road, there were no farmsteads within uh, eyeshot, and there were no towns for a great distance, and I decided, what can I do? So I just drove. And I prayed, and I prayed that the windshield wouldn't shatter and that my vehicle, our vehicle, would not be totaled. Well, long story short was uh, the, the windshield didn't get shattered, but our van got beat up pretty badly, but it still was drivable, so it, it made it, and that's before I knew Norb, so I didn't get the, the dents out of it, so uh, I didn't know, uh, it, it, it still has the dents, in fact. I was looking for a safe place, some place that, that I could get in. And, and as, as we're now turning to chapter 22 in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that, that David is leaving Gath, 
in chapter 22, verse 1. He's leaving Gath, all right, because he's afraid. He, he's looking for a safe place in the storm that he's facing, which is Saul's after him. And Saul wants him dead. And so he escapes to a cave uh, for sanctuary as he flees from Saul. And the record in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel is, exposes this record of him finding refuge in the cave of Adullam exposes, first of all, the growing contrast. The contrast between David's regal, uh, royal, uh, kingly, and, and righteous and selfless ministry. So that's David. In stark contrast to Saul, who is rebellious, and he's actually, in this text, acting very repulsively and completely selfishly. And so you have that contrast, and it's accentuated. And we've seen it before, but it's building and building and building, and it's being magnified. And so we see the Lord's anointed David in this text as as a picture of his greater descendant, Jesus, who is a refuge, who's a safe place in the storm, as much as the appointed or the, 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 the appointed leader, Saul, represents all the world's rulers who are just the opposite. <laughs> so the refuge in the Lord's anointed is contrasted with the, the, the opposite, the danger of the Lord's appointed rulers and leaders. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. In verses 1 through 23, there are at least three reasons to run to the Lord's anointed, not to the world's appointed rulers to find refuge when we're in trouble. I'm in chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. If you have uh, your Bible or an app on your phone or you want to reach down under the seat in front of you, there should be a Bible there. So David departed from there. There is Gath. We see that in chapter 21. Uh, Remember, he was drooling down his beard and acting the the madman to escape uh, Achish, the king of Gath. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where when, when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart. And go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. So Saul, now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. Uh, comment here, he likes to sit under the shade. I can tell that. You can go back to chapter 14 and he was in the shade again. And, and verse 7, and Saul said to his servants who stood around him, here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give you all of you, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? 
for all of you have conspired against me that there is no one who discloses to me when, the son, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, and the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then he said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in all that in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of him of God for him that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Then Himelech answered the king and said, And who among all the servants of David is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is a captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or anything any to his, of his household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. Because their hand also was with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned around and attacked the priests and killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And... He struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women and children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one, of him, one, one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to, after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have brought about the death of every person in your household, or your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. Three reasons to run to the Lord's anointed, not the Lord's appointed, for refuge. The first one is that the Lord's anointed provides sanctuary for us. And there's several ways that I see in the text that uh, the Lord's anointed provides refuge for the needy. First of all, he attracts them, the needy. Uh, David's departure from, from Gath is described, it says that he escaped to the cave of Dulam, Adulam. To escape kind of conveys the idea, which Adulam, uh, not accidentally, literally means refuge. This is a cave of refuge. And he escaped to this cave of refuge to indicate the danger and the desperateness of his situation. I think I have a, do we have a slide of the location of Adulam? Yeah, Adulam. Now if you look to the left, you'll see Gath over there, okay? 
So that's where he was, and it's about 9 or 9 to 12 miles that he escaped uh, to this cave near Adullam, okay? So David sought refuge in the cave. We've been to southern Florida a few times, and there's a place called on Sanibel Island called J.N. Ding Darling Wild, National Wildlife Refuge, okay? So the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge is a place where migratory birds go, and they find sanctuary. Uh, they're safe. Well, they're at least safe from humans. They're not safe from alligators and other predators, but they have a refuge there. In much the same way, David was seeking refuge in the cave of Adullam, but it wasn't just him. Now, remember, he's running for his life. And so anybody associated with David would also be threatened. And so the text says that his brothers and his mother and father and his whole father's household, they also went down. Because they didn't want to receive the retribution from Saul either. And then uh, it says that they went down and it wasn't just family. So like if you had been a friend of David or favorable to David or maybe even served under David or for whatever reason these people went down after David. The text says in verse 2 that everyone, now that's the New American Standard. Now the ESV might say all, all who were in distress. What's that mean? They're panicked. They're paranoid. Because of some life-threatening or life-altering situation. They're scared. And so they run to him. Now, in that day, it could have been a famine. It could have been just that they're like freaked out by Saul because he's a paranoid guy. I mean, you've got to believe that people heard that he tried to kill his own son. You know, tried to spear his own son. you got to believe that they've heard that he's tried to kill David on numerous occasions. And so they're like, whoa, this guy's a schizo. Uh, we, we better, we better find, find refuge. So they were distressed. Any loyalty to him was see, perceived as a threat. Loyalty to, to David would have been perceived as a threat to Saul. But what are we distressed about? What do you get distressed about? Going to the grocery store? I mean, some people are getting distressed because of the rising prices of, of, of food. Some are distressed when they think about the fact that we might be entering World War III. Some people get distressed by natural disasters. And we've seen it around the country. Some people are freaked out because it's 115 in Phoenix. I'm not really worried because I think it's probably usually 115 in Phoenix in July. But uh, uh, some people are like, well, they're, they're distressed about that. Relational conflict. People get, you know, I don't know about you. I, I just really don't like, oh, goody, we get to have a, a conflict. You know, I, I, I disagree with somebody, so I'm really excited about it. No, it's like most people are not like, and my, say, my saying is, if you're excited about entering into a conflict, it, you got a problem. You know, then, you know, if you're running towards a, a conflict, that's, that's not a good thing. But it distresses us. Serious illness. My wife ha- had somebody close to her that recently was running an extremely high temperature for a number of days. And Marlo's thinking, meningitis, encephalitis, sepsis. Now, <laughs> you can talk to Marlo if you want to find out what all that is. Okay, but it's not good. Okay, it's, it's not good stuff. And so she, she said, uh, antibiotics, you need, and that worked. And by God's grace, the person, the person got better. But those who were distressed, those who were in debt, which is distressing, 
And as someone wiser than me said, debt is the slavery of the free. Okay, that's it. If you're, you're free and you're in debt, you're still a slave. A slave to the debtor, to the debt. Then discontented. The New American Standard says discontented. Uh, literally means bitterly, bitterness of soul. Their soul is bitter. And it arises from, from disappointment, deep disappointment. Or hopelessness. Or helplessness in troubling circumstances. Now Saul was oppressive, right? So it's understandable that people would feel distressed or discontented, bitterness of soul. He was paranoid. He was godless. He was unscrupulous. That would be distressing to have a leader, you know, that's all of these things. We've seen in 1 Samuel that barrenness and inability to have children for for Hannah, back in chapter 1, verse 10, she, she was distressed in her soul. Some, for some people, it's single parenting that is distressing. It gives you a sense of, of helplessness and hopelessness and disappointment. It could be persistent health challenges. It could be a, rebe- a rebellious child. It could be that we're in a job that seems like a dead-end job. It's like, whoa, I, this is going nowhere fast, so I'm distressed. I'm, I'm hopeless. It could be we feel helpless amidst the, the, the tidal wave of cultural moral degeneracy. The, the, the tidal wave of the LGBTQ agenda that normalizes and, 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 and uh, child mutilation. It could be that we feel overwhelmed by these kinds of things. And so we just don't understand. It could be it was a motley crew. That's the, basically the point. <laughs> Who came to David? Well, all of the, all of the riffraff, you know, the, the, the people who were upset, the people who were needy, the people who were hurting. These are the people that came to David. And secondly, we see, okay, in the midst of all that, what does he do? Does he say, uh, sorry, I don't have time for you. We see, second of all, that he accepts leadership responsibility. He became the captain over them, all right? He became the captain over them. He led the eclectic group of 400, and, and, and it points to this whole thing points to David's greater son, the Lord's anointed, who welcomes in a motley crew. If you know Jesus, you better say amen, because that's you, and that's me. We are part of that motley crew that he welcomed in. Those who were distressed, those who were in debt, not, not necessarily physically, Uh, monetarily, but in debt to Him because of our sin. To those of us who are bitter, experience bitterness of soul, these are the people that He welcomes in. Jesus, who provides ultimate refuge as the captain for the distressed, the indebted, and those who are discontented. So what do we find? You know, what are we looking to? The world. The world looks for security. And and the world looks for security and financial well-being. If I'm just financially well-off, good. Then I'm good to go. But interestingly enough, people who get rich never have enough. You know, you know the story about the lady going through the dumpster? And uh, she's looking for money and she's picking out money. And somebody said, well, what, what, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm, just, I'm just getting money. And they found out she was a millionaire. They said, well, how much money do you need? Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And so we look for contentment and security and satisfaction in prosperity and self-indulgence and physical fitness 
And some people look for it in, in drug-altered consciousness, you know. I just want to get high and, and, and forget about life, and I'm going to find security and satisfaction in that. And for sure, they look for it in Christless, Christless spirituality. I mean, our world is a spiritual world, and everybody's looking for a satisfaction and fulfillment, but they don't find it. Because nothing that the world offers is a refuge that they're seeking. Nothing in the world offers peace in our panic. Nothing the world offers provides clarity, real clarity, in our confusion. Relief in our remorse, healing in our hurt, or safety in being scared. Our biggest problem is not found, or the solution to it is not found. Our biggest problem is we're alienated from God. We're, 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 we're trying to fill a God-sized hole with human devices. And our alienation from God because of our rebellion against Him, which leaves us empty, spiritually, emotionally, it leaves us empty, and it leaves us with only the expectation of judgment. Like that. That's not a very good place to be, but that's where the world is. That's where every human being is born, and that's where we're headed, apart from the person and work of Jesus, who is our refuge, the Lord's anointed, is our refuge. Only in a relationship with God through faith in Christ for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I just read this morning in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, that there is forgiveness to all who believe in Him that provides us with the wholeness and fullness that we want. Only in Christ can we know pardon from sin, which is our real problem. Only in Christ can we know peace with God. Because apart from Christ, we're at enmity with God. We're enemies of God. Only in Christ can we know the peace of God. So as we go through troubled times, we can know joy in the midst of our hardship because the peace of God that passes all understanding comforts our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ can we know purpose in life that transcends us. It's not just about getting married, having two kids and two cars and living in the suburbs. There's got to be something more to life than that. To live for something bigger and better than ourselves and that is found in living for the kingdom of God. That my life is part of a bigger plan, part of God's grand plan to reach lost people with the gospel, the good news, the saving message of Christ. In Christ, there is power, spiritual power, to go through adversity and to press ahead when I'm discouraged and to keep moving even though I don't want to. In my depression, I can serve. In my disappointment, I can live. In my heartache, I can find peace. Only in Christ. And then, ultimately, in Christ, I have the promise that one day, one day, one day, it's going to be over and there will be glory with Christ in heaven. That's in Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You see, the world is looking for something else to provide them the refuge that Christ says can only be found in me, and I will give you rest. 
Come to me, all that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of us are a slave. Every person is a slave. We're either a slave of sin or a slave of the Savior. Choose your master. Thirdly, he attended his family. This is kind of precious. I mean, David's parents are old. He's the youngest. He's the baby in the family, right? He's got his, two, his older brothers that like to pick on him when he's going out to feed, uh, uh, fight Goliath. And he, he takes care of his family. In, in verses 3 and 4, he goes to the king of Moab. Now, some of you are already reeling there. You're going there. Well, yeah, what's, what, why would he go to the king of Moab? Well, do you remember a story? A story in the book of Ruth that somehow David is connected to Moab because his great-grandmother is Ruth, a Moabitess. I don't know. We don't know from the story. We don't know for sure. Maybe it was like, hmm, yeah, maybe we can call in some favors with some blood relatives here and they can protect dad and mom. And so there we have him going and seeking refuge and his concern for his aging parents honors them as Exodus 20 verse 12 calls us to. And it commends him as a man of integrity. Fourth, he admits his dependency. Now, I'm going I'm to keep him here until I know what the Lord will do. You see the difference between Saul and David? David is like, I want to find out what God wants. He was, in, he was having a hymn like, inquire of the Lord for him. How about you? How about me? Until I know what the Lord wants me to do. Am I dependent upon God? Am I looking to God in my situation? Whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, am I saying, what does God want? Or am I saying, what, what do I want? What do I want? And then he acts on prophecy. This is, this is cool because you're reading down through the text and all of a sudden you get to verse 5 and it says in the prophet Gad. And you go, Where, what, what? Who? Never heard of this guy. Where did he come from? It doesn't really matter. We don't know the answers to all that. But he's a prophet. And the prophet Gad speaks. And the prophet was God's gracious gift to guide David the Lord's anointed, in his desperate situation. The voice of God to give him the answer to his question until I know what God wants me to do. Great. And guess what? In contrast to Saul, David listened to God's voice. So David departed, the text says. I don't know about you, but I want to encourage you to find comfort in this little incident here. That in our desperation, God provides direction. Then through the prophet Gad, but to us, through his prophetic word. For, for 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And we, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which we do well to pay attention. Get that? <laughs> Listen to the word. As to the lamp shining in a dark place. Anybody else wake up this morning and think, well, the world's all good as it should be and there's no problems in the world? I don't think so. We live in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scriptures becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. David had Gad. 
the prophet, the mouthpiece of God. We have this book, which is God's mouthpiece to us, to find encouragement in our desperate situations. The second reason to run to the Lord's anointed, not the world's appointed rulers in our trouble, is that the world's appointed, appointed persecute the spiritual among us. In contrast to the Lord's anointed, we see the world's appointed persecuting, not protecting, the people that are under them. And there are two tactics that uh, Saul employs that I think are not just for Saul, they're for all world rulers that are worldly. First of all, he, uh, he, he manipulates them selfishly, okay? So what are the tools that he uses to manipulate? How does Saul manipulate the situation here? Well, we see, first of all, in verses 6 and 7, he's sitting under the tree, okay? A tamarisk tree here is a different kind of a tree back in chapter 14. And with his spear in his hand, so he's sitting down with his spear in his hand. Why do you think he had his spear in his hand? We don't know for sure, but I think it's a power play. You know, it's like, okay, I'm ready, dudes. And all of his servants are sitting around him. And then he, he starts, to, starts in. And he sought to discredit his adversary and humiliate his allies in order to, to foster some loyalty uh, that they should have because he was insecure, which is the way leaders manipulate. Okay, They're insecure, so they try to manipulate other people into thinking, you owe me something. Well, so read the text, verses 6 and 7. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all the servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants, Hear now, O Benjamites, you blood relatives of mine. Okay? You blood relatives of mine. Hear now, O Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse also give you all of uh, fields and vineyards? I mean, he's going to make you commanders of thousands and hundreds. So, Son of Jesse, which is, if you look at the text, that's how he refers to David the whole time. Which is a dismissive, diminutive uh, reference. He's putting him down, right? Uh, he's the son of Jesse. He's not really a man's man. You can't really call him by name. He's the son of Jesse. And so he puts him down. Will he, now notice, in the New American Standard, the ESV doesn't say this. But the New American Standard also, will he also, as if Saul is saying, look, I gave you vineyards. And fields, I made you commanders of thousands and hundreds. Will he do the same thing? No. No, he's not going to do the same thing. So Saul casts doubt on David's ability and reminds the servants of his own generosity. That should translate into loyalty. Saul's paranoia convinced him that the only incentive that would cause these guys to betray him would be offering them stuff like he did, good stuff, you know, Great stuff. Now, and even though his accusation is fabricated, it's not true. He's saying, well, you're, you're my enemy. You're going against me. You knew it and, and you didn't do anything about it. And that's not true. You have all conspired against me. <laughs> he's narcissistic and he's hedonistic. He's just thinking about himself. And he's making these things up, clamoring for their support. 
and that he's narcissistic and hedonistic, thinking about himself, trying to manipulate them to get them to support by accusing, falsely accusing them of betraying him, is seen in verse 8. If you go through verse 8 and you, you circle or underline all of the first-person pronouns, I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my, you see it's all about Saul, which it always is for worldly leaders. It's all about them. They're not there to serve. They're there to suck the life out of the people that are serving them. And that's what we see in Saul. I mean, think about it. Why do these climate change people fly around all around the world in their private jets and then tell you and me we can't drive a car? Secondly, he's begging for sympathy. you got to pity Saul. Nobody felt sorry for me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Because nobody, and and nobody told me. He's begging for sympathy. Thirdly, he's blatantly dishonest in verse 13. And verse 8 and verse 13. I mean, it's not... Highly unlikely that these people had conspired against him. I mean, I'm thinking, no, it's a lie. And then nobody knew about the covenant between David and Jonathan except for David and Jonathan. That's why it was taking place out in the field somewhere when nobody saw it. And I'm sure Jonathan's not walking around like a, a living gab house saying, yeah, guess what? David and I, we're in buddies. We're good. All for life. And David's going to take care of me and he's going to kill you all, but he's going to take care of me and my family. So chill out. No. And there's certainly no evidence that David was laying, lying in ambush for, for, for Saul. No, David supported Saul. Fourthly, he brings others into his perversity. And now we get to Doeg. Remember Doeg from chapter 21? He was the guy that just happened to be there when David showed up at Nob. Uh-huh, now we see him coming back on the scene. And Doeg sought to prove his loyalty. He sought to prove his loyalty by, by implicating Ahimelech, and by saying, here's what, I, I was there. Now you have to ask yourself the question, how come Doeg didn't speak up before now? Oh, but the time is, is ripe, and the opportunity is great, and so he has inside information. He's using it to his advantage, and he's basically, uh, I think, accusing David of what Saul is saying he's doing. He's trying to lay ambush and try to overthrow him. It's trying to be a coup. Okay, but here's what he accused. He says, here's what Ahimelech did. He inquired of the Lord for him. That's dangerous. We see that right in our culture. If the Lord is in it, then the world says, uh-oh, that's bad. Must be some sort of overthrow. It's a bad thing. Then he gave him provisions, and he gave him the sword of Goliath. Ooh, Saul would remember that. So now he must be armed for war. I don't know, I'm making a little bit of that up. It's kind of the, you know, the thing that he, but basically he's blatantly dishonest. He's just not telling the truth. And we've seen that. We've seen world leaders, they, tell, they don't tell us the truth. 51, special agents, ex, you know, special agents swore that there was nothing to uh, the Hunter Biden laptop thing. And I'm, this is not a political statement. This is just an illustration of fabrication. It's just blatantly not true. There is something to it. And they said, no, there's nothing to it. This is the way the world operates with us. 
What's, and you can write this down. I would encourage you to go back there sometime. I don't have to get into it, time to get into it. But in Psalm 52, Psalm 52 is, is David's response to Doeg's uh, ratting him out, okay, so to speak. And it's a beautiful text that, that illumines the, the wickedness of Saul and Doeg. Actually, it's, a, it's intended for Doeg. And a statement by David that God is going to bring permanent provision of judgment upon this man who is a worker, he says in Psalm 52, a worker of deceit and someone who loves evil rather than good. Folks, that's the world in which we live in. The people who don't know Christ love evil rather than good. They are workers of deceit. They're not there to be our refuge. They are there to be abusing us and using us. And they don't know Christ, okay? So that, that's their default. It's not necessarily that, that that's, uh, they're not excused from it, but they're also, it's understandable, not explain, it's explainable, not excusable. It's explainable, not excusable. They're fallen creatures, but it doesn't excuse. And guess what? Uh, we'll see later that Nobody's excusing Doeg and Saul from what they've done, even though they, they did it. So here we have these workers of deceit, and all worldly leaders do it. Secondly, we see that the second tactic that world leaders use is world leaders desecrate the godly. This is verses 11 through 19, and three examples of ungodly rulers' hostility against God's people. Godly, worldly leaders uh, unleash false accusations. Uh, so summon, Saul summoned Ahimelech, the priest of Nob, and all of his boys, and, and they brought him in there, and they came to the king with his family. And notice how, in verse 11, the king sent and summoned to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's household, and they all came to him. And then verse 12, and Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitab. And he says, here I am, my lord. He's not a rebel. He's here to serve. He's here to serve. But he said, here I am, my Lord, in his humility. And then what does Saul do? He falsely accused him. Son of a high tub, you're assisting Jesse, the son of Jesse, in an attempted coup. What? I mean, this is crazy, right? He's, he's falsely accusing him of something that he had nothing to do with. But this is the way of the world. They want to make what believers or those who follow God out to be wrong and what they're doing is right. Secondly, worldly rulers are unwilling to listen to God. Remember David and the prophet, of, uh, prophet who came to him? Gad? He listened to him. But what does David do? Or what does Saul do? When the priests tell him the mouthpiece of God to them when they speak, he doesn't listen. Ahimelech courageously defended, and this is a beautiful passage of Scripture, especially in verse 14, because Ahimelech defends David. Read it with me, verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Like nobody, right? I mean, he's top dog. He's the most faithful. The, David's resume of integrity is in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. And secondly, he says, oh yeah, by the way, he's your son-in-law. And in fact, you wanted him to be your son-in-law. So put the guilt where it belongs. That's my adding. Okay, not, not true. Um, 
Who is captain over your guard? You put this guy in charge of the people who are protecting you. He's your secret service protection detail head guy. And then he didn't stop there. And he says, and he's honored in your house. Your people respect him. Your people love him. Nobody's more loyal. And then the next thing, he's a very spiritual guy. This is my summary of it in verse 15. He says, did I just now begin to inquire of the Lord for him? You see, David's a spiritual dude. He's going to the Lord. He's going to the king, the priest, and saying, can you help me out? And wanting information and, and instruction and guidance often. He's not a coup candidate. Okay? This is not, this is not your guy. The priest was not party. And then the priest defended himself. I don't even know what you're talking about. Now that's my summary of verse 15. The end of verse 15 he says, um, For all your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about, Saul. And it really Saul didn't either because he's making it up. So he's, I don't know what you're talking about. And Saul rejects the truth of Ahimelech's innocence and he insists that he and his whole household must die. Folks, that's satanic, deranged paranoia. This is not from God. This is not from God. And whenever we see the world leaders in complete opposition to God's word, his spoken word, we should take note that this is the way of the world. It is in direct opposition to God. This is not of the world. This is, uh, well, it's of the world. It's of the netherworld, okay? It's demonically directed. World leaders ignore truth. They persecute. They don't protect Christians, okay? They don't protect God's people. Then we see that worldly leaders are unhinged and unhindered in their opposition to God and his people. So what does Saul do? Turn around, you priests of God, or you, you, you servants of mine, and kill all these priests of God. Isn't it interesting? That it, well, sorry. Forgive me for saying that. I find it interesting in the text that all of his servants refused. So reprehensible in their eyes was the destruction of God's priestly class that I mean, we're not talking about good guys here. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about the saints. We're talking about the, the motley crew that was around David. They were so self-aware that they, they didn't want to do this, which tells us how reprehensible it really was. They didn't want to do it because they, 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 they said, Saul says, oh, you, you should do this. And here's the reason you should do it. Because you, these priests knew that David was fleeing and he was planning a coup. That's a lie. Uh, we don't know that. It's probably not true. But the priests were ignorant and innocent of David's, you know, alleged uh, mutiny. And so Saul denied their testimony. He denies him. Himlik says, I don't know anything about it. I'm true. And Saul blatantly denies it. This is the point. Worldly rulers hate God's people because, here's it, they hate God's people because we reject, we resist, and we reveal their debauchery, their sinfulness, their wickedness. We resist it, we reject it, and we reveal, expose. The darkness is 
brought into the light. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when we resist, reject, and reveal the darkness, they don't like it. And so this is what we see. Doeg carried out Saul's gruesome and godless request. And he attacked not just God's priest, but God himself in doing so. Saul's godless rampage didn't stop with the priests of Nob who were brought to Gibeah. But no, he sent Doeg to Nob to take out the entire city. That's how gruesome it was. That's how wicked it was. And there's bitter irony here, okay? Bitter irony, because back in chapter 15, what was Saul instructed to do to the Amalekites? The wicked, evil Amalekites. He was instructed to do exactly what Doeg did to God's people at Nob, the priestly town. So in his, uh, this is the way, in his rage-filled insolence or pride, he did to the innocent people and priests of Nob what in his arrogance and rebellion he was unwilling to do out of righteous obedience to God with the Amalekites. You see the irony there? So we'll, we'll punish the righteous and we'll go easy on the wicked. Whoa, whoa, bells and whistles, flash, flash, lights, ding, 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 ding. That's what we see in the world. You have to make a cake for people whose lifestyle you disagree with regardless. Wait a second. Unless you go along with the the, the taking of innocent life in the womb, you are somehow a hateful person. This is what we see in our world. Secondly, and this is cool, Worldly opposition to God and His people actually accomplishes God's will. So when the world opposes us, I mean, we see it here. They, 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 we see it with regard to Saul and Doeg. How do, I, how do I know that? Well, we have to go back into 1 Samuel. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the priests... Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, was a relative of Eli. And the curse on Eli and his family because Eli refused to punish his son's sins back in chapter 2, verses 31 through 33, and back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 16 through 16, is that none of his sons would uh, sit as priests for a long time on the throne. This is a direct punishment on Eli that God used. So their wrath against Ahimelech was actually fulfillment of God's prophetic word. We saw it with the person of Jesus. You can look at Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to, now look at this, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. So the wickedness of men was serving the purposes of God. When the world opposes us, they're going to end up fulfilling God's plan. Now, that doesn't mean they get off the hook. They're not excused from their sin. They're held accountable and culpable even though they're doing God's bidding. 
That's a crazy thing. But what it does is, though the wrong, this is the song, right? Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He's still in charge. Remember back in COVID days, uh, then uh, out in Nevada, they could not meet in churches, but you could go to the casino. Five people in a church, hundreds of people in the casino. Now what's that about? Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler. And coming out of that, the, the church rallied and said, Lo, wait a second, we're going to, we're going to stand up and, and we're going to exercise our right, even if it costs us, even if it, it, it is offensive. And so you had two guys in Canada, pastors, who churches continued to meet, and they ended up going to prison. Well, they paid for it, but they did. And it, it strengthened the resolve of believers to, to do what God's word says, not not. So God's purposes are fulfilled and all the bad actors. This is interesting to me. I want you to look at Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And this is a, somebody said, why, why is the world so hostile against uh, Christians? David answers, why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together. Now, interesting language here. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Against God, his people, and his Savior. Because the world, in its fleshly, sinful, satanic movements, hates God. It's a rebellion. It's a rebellion, okay? Third reason that we should go to the Lord's anointed, not the world's appointed, is in verses 20 through 23. And there's uh, that the, the Lord's anointed promises safety. There's two activities that confirm the Lord's anointed as a source of safety. First, he accepts responsibility. Don't you, I, I appreciate David. Abiathar, who's the only survivor from the family of Ahimelech, comes to David and he tells him the gruesome story of what happened. And David goes, that's my fault. That's on me. How, how can I, you know, how can I change it? When we were on our vacation up in, uh, in Galena, uh, we had these two Airbnbs, and one, one family stayed in one, and one family stayed in the other. And the day we were checking out, uh, one of the family members from the other house came and said, yeah, I just got to tell you that, you know, uh, someone over there broke one of the glasses, and uh, somebody else, you know, chipped the, the coffee, the craft thing that you stick in the coffee where you make the coffee and drips into it. Um, I say that because I'm not a coffee person, so I think it's called a carafe, whatever. Anyhow, it's like, people don't do that anymore. I mean, we're talking, wow, well, what's the big deal? It's a glass, you know, it's a, it's a coffee thing. And so I reported it to the Airbnb, and, you know, they told me thanks. And then we found out that we had inadvertently taken one of the hand towels out of the bathroom. So I told them, oh, we took one of the hand towels. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to do that. Uh, not like it doesn't fit with our, our decor, but we, we got it. And, and, and so what do you want us to do? So he owned a responsibility. This is, there is safety in honesty. If you want someone that you can trust you, want, you can find refuge in the people you trust. The people who lie to you, and the world and the worldly leaders, they lie. The Lord's anointed tell the truth. Secondly, we see his assurance of safety. Saul's, Saul's final What's Saul's final words to Ahimelech? You and your family will die. What are David's final words to Abiathar? You're safe with me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
This is Psalm 12, 2, verse 12. In Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the son, that he may not be angry, and you, you perish in the way, for his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So I ask you today, are you finding refuge in the Lord's anointed? The Lord's anointed King, Jesus? I hope so. In the true king, the Lord's anointed Jesus, we find a captain who will lead, who will feed, who will protect us. Only, you know, only in him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never fully put your faith and your trust in what Christ did on the cross as a payment for your sin, here's the word. Only in the true king Jesus, who's, who is the Lord's anointed, will the distressed, those indebted, and those who are bitter of soul find safety. And we find the safety through pardon of our sin. Through the peace that God brings to us because we are no longer His enemy. And the peace we have with God as we walk on this earth. We'll have the purpose in life. We have the power of God in us. We have the presence of Christ with us. We have the promise of Christ for eternity. That's the safety. That's the refuge that the world is looking for in all these places. It's found only in Christ. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Have you come to him? Have you confessed your sin and turned and trusted what Jesus did on the cross as the payment you deserve so that you can know the pardon, the peace, the power, the presence, and the promise of eternal life? And if you haven't, I invite you to do that today. And I invite you to to pray, Lord, forgive me and turn me from my sin and I trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. Not magic words, it's a hard attitude. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, may we be more consistently coming to him as our source of refuge and not tempted to draw away and look to the world. The symbols that we take, the bread and the, the juice, they declare how he became a refuge for us because he died so that we could live. He died so that we could have eternal life and trust him throughout this life. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take a moment or two to search your heart and confess your sin and then come to the table here and the table in the back. You can take the elements at the table or take them back and take them as you want. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you provided your Lord, your Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as a refuge. And I pray that those of us who know you would find you an ever-present help in the time of need. You are our hiding place. And whenever we are afraid, Lord, help us to trust in you. And I pray for those who don't know Christ and maybe they're, they're thinking about it. I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust you and just confess it to you and invite you to be their Lord and their Master right now in the quietness of their heart turn them to you I pray this in Jesus name Amen. if you make that decision I, I'm available after the service I'd love to talk to you about that